Welcome back once again to the Great Scott Podcast. On this episode, Mike interviews the very clever and talented comedian Stephen Scott. Stephen is a longtime member and former governor of the legendary Friars Club. Hey, Stephen, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, thanks. First, first question for you: Are we related somehow? Are we related? You know, yeah. What's the old joke? Uh, what is it? Alan King and Larry <laughs> King meet at a roast, and he says, "Oh, maybe, maybe we're related." He goes, "Yeah. What was your name before you changed it?" Well, <laughs> <laughs> my my name actually is Scott, my last name, and uh, who knows? It's very possible. Although my name, um, uh, it's not because my father. It's just it's my father's professional name. So uh, oh, gotcha. So, yeah, it was. You'd ha- you'd have to. My my father would have had to hook up with some waitress who was your mom somewhere. <laughs> your lady. <laughs> so Stephen, uh, what has been up these last uh, few weeks for you? What uh, what all have you been doing? Been up to? I have been cooped up just like everybody else, uh, social distancing and self isolating. Um, and how long ago did you go crazy? Uh, oh, I went crazy uh, probably uh, shortly out of the womb. <laughs> <laughs> I make I make a living at being crazy. So you, yes, you do. Yes. Um, no, I was uh, I was actually on my way to India um, on March eighth, uh, and um, and it was that day I was I was going to do a show. I, I had a job booked. Uh, I was booked on a luxury uh, cruise line out of India going to Dubai, and uh, uh, that day India closed their ports, and suddenly oh. like, oh okay, and then they couldn't they couldn't get me anywhere else to pick up the ship and. Uh, and so that was that was it. The, the last the last actual show that I did was on March first, and then I did uh, I did a corporate uh, hosting gig on uh, I think it was the fifth, and that's it. I have been cooped up ever since then, just twiddling mm-hmm. my thumbs here. I mean, I've done a few of the a uh, couple of these virtual things, uh, but that, that those are the last live shows I've done. Now you are a part of something that is one of my absolute favorite things. I'm a big comedy guy. I've been doing stand up myself for about two years now. Well, let me rephrase it. I was doing stand up. Right. <laughs> like all of them. Else. Yes. Yes. Um, but uh, you're part of, um, I think, one of the most prestigious things in the world, and that's the that's the Friars Club. That is true. And I, uh, I, I, Uncle uh, Uncle Milty is the one who who started that. Uh, well, actually, Uncle Mosey did not start it. Um, if, oh, he did. if you really want to go back, it actually goes back to 1904. It was pre- um, it was Broadway um, uh, press agents that uh, that started it, um, uh, and it be, it grew and grew, and it started to include um, members of the entertainment uh, community, you know, Broadway, vaudeville, and eventually it, it leaned toward having a, a pretty big comedy event with a bench with people like uh, Milton Berle, of course, George Burns, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, but we, you know, uh, Frank Sinatra, we have singers, actors, every, I mean, it's everybody. And um, yeah, so it started in 1904. Uh, the, uh, the building that's our current clubhouse that we call the monastery uh, we've had since 1957 uh it was uh, milton burrow was looking at it as a as a home as a personal home and he didn't like it but said hey this might be a great clubhouse for the friars and it's a beautiful building and we've been there uh been there ever since so yeah there's a rich history um you know of course with the roasts and stuff it has a rich comedy history and yeah it's a great place and certainly if you're once we're allowed to reopen again if you're uh this part of uh this part of the world we'll we'll we'll, we'll have you over as my guest oh i i appreciate that are you guys uh going to be doing roasts again Again, yes, we had one. Actually, we had one scheduled uh, for uh, June, which obviously had to be uh, uh, indefinitely postponed. But it will happen uh, at some point once we're allowed to reopen. Can you tell um, who it is? 
Um, yeah, well, it was, it was, uh, yeah, I think it was publicized. So it was, uh, it was Al Sharpton. Oh, okay. It be, yeah, it was going to be a unique roast because it was a, uh, you know, a, uh, a election year. And, uh, so you have, um, what was funny, it was, it was going to be the, you know, all the MSNBC and the, and the Fox News people all together. I think, uh, you know, Hannity was going to be the roast master or something like that. So it was, it was going to be a unique combination of these people who, you know, are friendly when the cameras are off, but, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> politically. And it was like, okay, this will be interesting. So, yeah, there was, we had a lot of, a lot of big names uh, um, that were, were attached to be there for it. And um, I remember, you know, uh, I remember one roast that you did, uh, Betty White. I think that was like a few, few years ago. Yeah, and, that uh, was about six, I think, years ago. Six, six years, years ago, yeah. And one of the jokes was that Betty White is so old, the color white is named after her. Yeah, oh, that's pretty funny. Actually, that's funny. I wonder who said that. That's a good, you know, it's funny because it's funny and it's clean, you know, <laughs> at the roast, they can get a little raucous. Uh, so that, that's, that's, a, that's a very funny joke. Actually. And, and, and uh, actually, uh, now that you bring that up, I mean, I do appreciate your, your style of comedy and your, um, your, your demeanor of, of comedy. Cause like you say, I mean, you turn on any station like Comedy Central and, They'll use every four-letter word in the book, and uh, and I've had Rich Rich Little come on the show here, and um, I just uh, have to say thank you for what you do for the comedy of uh, keeping it, keeping it clean, not beat you over the head type of comedy. Oh, thank you, Michael. That's well, uh, it's nice you saying I'm proud of that. And you know, look, there's a time and a place for stuff. I mean, obviously, I've uh, I've done. It's funny the roasting. Um, you know, I've I've done roast. I got to roast Jerry Lewis a bunch of years ago and um uh, on the on the big roast and i was the roast master for the uh, gary Busey roast about three years ago which is a big honor um and there you know in that environment you loosen up a little bit because it's appropriate for the thing but typically yeah. uh when i go out there and, and especially you know it's one thing if i'm playing a, a comedy club in the city you know i can loosen up and, and do what i like but you know when i'm when i'm doing a corporate gig or i'm doing a, a country club or a synagogue or a cruise or whatever it might be you know you you have a real uh, eclectic mix of people and they they don't want to hear that kind of stuff really and um i always tell young comedians if you want to make a living in the comedy business learn to write clean you can be dirty when you want on your time but but when you're when you're getting be able to write clean because the mo the highest paying jobs are the ones where they're going to ask you and say, look, we need you to be clean. And if you can't do it, you're not going to be able to take those jobs. So yeah. I'm, I'm always, I'm very proud of that. And I, it's one of the compliments that I get often when I do those kind of venues, I say, Oh, you know, we usually don't like comedy because it's too different. Thank you for being <laughs> yeah. clean. And they go, Oh, you did a whole hour show and you didn't say one bad word. And I was like, Oh, well, you know, I mean, that's, uh, you know, so I'm, I, I am very proud of that. So thank you for, for, uh, for pointing that out. Was there ever a time for you where you weren't clean? No, I mean, look, I I curse like a sailor in my, in my <laughs> personal life. I mean, I'm not by no means am I a cherub. I I know. I, I I mean, uh, but I think uh, again, it's it's the old time and place adage. I mean, uh, it depends on who you're performing for. I mean, if you're doing a gig and you have you know uh, clergy sitting there, or you have parents sitting with children, and and it's not it's not only um, it, it, it's not only the language. I mean, I, I think uh, uh, there was an agent I worked with uh, many years ago at, at William Morris, who was a top uh, corporate uh, booker. And um, and I just started there was about 20 years ago. And he said to me, he said, man, your gig went great. And he goes, thank you for getting it about being clean. He goes, I have so many of these young comics. They just don't get it. He said to me, he goes, uh, um, uh, he got on some comic for being. He goes, oh, I didn't say the f word. I didn't say the s word. He goes, no, but you talked about masturbating for twenty minutes. You know? uh, so it's not. Yeah. It's not just about. It's not just about. 
the words. It's about the subject matter, too. You don't want people to feel uncomfortable in, th- in that kind of a, uh, an environment. If I'm doing a condo in Florida, you know, uh, it's one thing, like I said, if you're doing a comedy club uh, in the city, you know, you can loosen up. It's expected. Other com- but but um, but when you're doing those paid gigs, you have a mix of people who really just uh, funny is funny. You know, I don't I think if you're look and there is a place. I mean, there are people who do edgy duty material if. If the material is, uh, I have what I call the filthy funny formula, and it's very simple. You can be up to 49% filthy as long as you're at least 51% funny. <laughs> and if, if, if in that situation, then they remember the funny. Yeah. But if it's the other way around, then they just remember the filthy. I've actually <laughs> been, yeah, I've been in situations where I've told, uh, I've, I've done a joke that was maybe dirty or had a dirty word in it, and then people come up to go, you are so clean, and it, and they don't realize it because it was funny. If it's organic and it's funny, they're thinking of how funny it is. They're not, they don't even realize it's dirty. But a lot of comics, especially some of the ones you might see on Comedy Center, especially in the roast that they show, the non-friars roast, they're more mean and dirty than they are funny. And that formula never works. It's funny first is the rule. And, and then people are more forgiving. You know. Now, I have a question for you. I mean, so we, we see that roast on TV, like with Jeff Ross and um who whoever else uh and they they televise that is there any uh talk about televising the roast uh, that you guys have at the friars club you know it's interesting because um it's a great question we we so what happened was just to give you a little bit of the backstory um we um the roast started you know they started back in the day probably uh in the, uh, the 30s or 40s and uh they were always in-house events and they grew and they were major events and they were usually luncheons and they would be in the afternoon on a friday and you'd get all these major celebrities and they were they were non-publicized events they were private which is one of the reasons i mean i've heard some roasts by the way uh where johnny carson is like the roast and he's cursing like a sailor and yeah you know, he was yeah. mr clean but in that environment among his friends he could be he could be like that and so well what happened was they and they went to the Friars and they asked if they could do a televised version of it. And the Friars said, no, we're, we're a private club. We don't want that. So what they created was in the 70s, you may recall, the Dean Martin Celebrity Roast. Right. And those were produced. That was based on the Friars, you know, roast. But it was clean. It was televised. You know, they, they made it clean, which was impressive. And then uh, years later, and I, I was a member of the club. This was in, I believe, 1997. Um, the Friars Club made a deal with Comedy Central to do five roasts over five years. Uh, and they were black tie events. They were done on uh, Friday nights or Saturday nights, wherever they were. And they were they were great. And the first one was Drew Carey. The second one was the late Jerry Stiller, who we just lost this week. Yeah. Um, and uh, the third was uh, Rob Reiner. Uh, I, I, so, yeah. Um, who is it? Uh, uh, Rob Reiner's, uh, I think Billy Crystal was the, was the roast master. And then uh, uh, we had, who else do we have? Um, oh, uh, the the infamous uh, Hugh Hefner roast where uh, Gilbert Gottfried did his aristocrats joke that was unbelievable <laughs> and then um, yeah and then uh, then of course um, and the last one I think was Chevy Chase in like 2002 or something so those were the five with Comedy Central and then what happened was um, and they did you know they aired and uh, just like you see them now but um, when the contract was up for renewal I guess someone at Comedy Central said well look you know even though the Friars club you know started the roast they don't have a copyright on the word roast we can kind of do our own thing and um and they just went off and did their own thing with it um and and the the roasts that they do are uh not as good they're 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 like i said they're a lot dirtier and a lot edgier and they're not as the thing we always say at the friars club is we only roast the ones we love yep 
And so it's really that kind of a thing. And you would get up there and, and there would be a camaraderie and a respect even while they're ribbing each other. And, and the ones on Comedy Central are just flat out mean and edgy and, you know, that they do now. So anyway, the Friars Club did have a deal, I believe, with, uh, was it the NFL or something? We did a couple of roasts um, not too long ago, I think maybe around 2011-ish, 12-ish, something like that. Where we we had one for I think it was Boomer Esiason and they they were they were coinciding with the Super Bowl and it was like an ESPN kind of thing which was a weird thing they did one in Phoenix as well and then there have been other things talked about um, I think it it comes down to uh, some people you know they don't want to they don't mind doing it privately but they don't want to necessarily do it on TV not everybody has the thick skin that they once had oh yeah. Um, and frankly, you know, back in the day when you did it, I mean, everybody was really friends. I mean, when you watch those roasts, you know, you get Rickles would get up and, and Bob Hope. And these people all knew each other and they were friends. Now you got some of these young people that nobody knows insulting people who are legends. I mean, when I, you know, I mean, I roasted Jerry Lewis, which is a big honor. And I'm sitting there on the dais with Robert De Niro and, and Martin Scorsese and Nathan Lane and all these people, you know, and I'm like, you know, I, I want to roast, I want to do the thing, but I also have to be respectful that, you know, Jerry Lewis is a legend and I'm a nobody. Right, right. Know who I am. So I had to do a backhand. I had to roast very surgically and kind of be funny without being, you know, disrespectful, but, but still breaking his balls. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a whole other art form. It's like a, a rap artist doing opera or vice versa. So I, I went to every single roast since I've been a member and um, except one, you know, I, I missed the Jack Black roast because I was. No. That was the only one I missed. I, otherwise, I've been to uh, 25 roasts or, or whatever the amount we've done, and I participated in a few of them. But it, it's a it's a whole style. I mean, I learned how to do it because of the Friars Club. And frankly, Jeffrey Ross, who I think would agree, and I, I just did a, uh, we did a show for Larry King. Uh, I guess this was back in November for his birthday. Um, Jeffrey Ross's career, in large part, is what it is because of the Friars. Because when Jeffrey uh, when I first met Jeffrey back in, uh, I guess, 95-ish, he was a great comic. He had just done Letterman, but he was doing regular, you know, material. And then he got the opportunity to do the roast, and that became his niche, and, and, and then he became the roast master general. So the whole angle of him being a roaster came about because of the Friars Club. And there's a few people, uh, modern, you know, comedians today that you know largely because whose careers took a big turn because of the roast. And Jeffrey Ross is one of them. Lisa Lampanelli's another. They put her on the yeah, Chevy yeah. Chase roast, and then everyone knew who she was. Uh, another one is Susie Essman, yeah. who um, was at the, um, was at, uh, I forget, was it the Danny Aiello roast or something? And Larry David was there and saw her and said, ooh, she'd be great for the Susie Green role in uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. That's where she got that. And the other one was uh, Joy Behar who uh, in around 1996 or seven was at a Friars. I don't know. It may not have been a roast. It may have been a testimonial dinner, but Barbara Walters saw Joy perform and go, Ooh, she'd be good to be the woman that takes over for me on the days I can't be there, which is how Joy started in the view. And then she became so popular. She was a regular cast member. And, and that's been over 20 years now. So um, a lot of times those things have turned into uh, <laughs> nice career opportunities for a few people. So, so. I need, to, so I need to, to join the roast is what I'm hearing then. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, it's interesting too because, yeah, yeah, I mean, it is, it's certainly a great way to be seen. I mean, I was honored a, a couple of years ago and they, they asked me, it was a weird situation. It was the, the, it was done. Usually we do it at like Hilton or Sheridan or one of these big places, but it, this one, the old roast used to be at the Friars Club and, and there were a couple that we did in the last few years we did in the, in the, in the club. And, uh, 
it was Gilbert Gottfried who was supposed to be the Roastmaster. Something happened on shorter notice. They, they, he couldn't do it. And, you know, it was hard to get people on shorter notice. And they called me, like, out of the minors and said, all right, we're calling up on you to step up. Do you want to be the Roastmaster for Gary Busey? And I had two weeks notice. And I wrote like crazy. And, uh, and we did this roast. And it was great because uh, I ran it kind of old school. It was a, it was a, you know, it was a really great night. And Gary Busey was terrific. And, and, you know, he's obviously, he's a bit of a character and he's, you know, he, he can go off the handle a little bit. I was prepared for that and it worked really well, but um, I was honored to step up and on this tradition that is so special and has been kind of in some respects um, abused or misused. I was, I was, we did it the old fashioned way where it was like, we were all on the same team. You know, all the people on the dais, we all had each other's backs. It was a camaraderie. It really was roasting the ones we loved. Gary was terrific, and and it was I was really honored to to be able to be a roastmaster for a Friars roast. That was a huge, huge honor when you think of the history behind that. Uh, so again, it's completely different than my normal style of comedy. Although I, you find that happy medium where I bring my style of comedy to it. Um, I don't go gratuitously filthy, but I do respect what what the event is and and meet the challenge. And so it's not as clean as my regular stand-up might be but but again i make sure it wins the filthy funny formula that every joke has to be funny before it's filthy and and then you can get away with a lot but yeah so uh yeah you know look i don't know what the style of comedy if if you do if you do that edgy kind of uh roasty kind of a thing Mm -hmm. but certainly uh we had this we we used to do this contest called so you think you can roast which was a series uh we did about uh, i think it was like eight years ago or so and eight years ago and uh, we did a bunch of mini roasts at the club for big people. I mean, it was Dennis Rodman and it was, uh, you know, Omarosa and uh, Vinny Pastore, who was, you know, big pussy from The Sopranos oh, yeah. and a few other people. And uh, and uh, and then you whoever won the contest got to roast on the annual roast that year for whoever the big celebrity was. And uh, that was a fun thing they did for us. So if they ever bring that back, certainly, uh, you know, we could get you in on there. You could submit your stuff. And uh, who knows? That could be... Uh, that could be your calling. <laughs> well, that's, that, that'd be so much fun. I mean, it always looks easy when you're watching it on TV to be able to roast. And then I'm sure in person you have these like guidelines that you have to follow. And yeah. Well, you know, what's hard about it. Yeah. It, it. There's a couple of things that are very challenging about it. Um, one is you can't like anywhere else. And you're a comedian. So, you know, you say you've been doing it two years. It's all about stage time, getting up, working at your material. And the more you work it out, you kind of figure out what works and what doesn't. Well, when you're doing a roast, you can't really go up in a club and do that material because it's a private event for a specific thing that everyone's going to relate to. So you're going up there and you're essentially doing an entire set of material for the very first time that you've not really tested in front of a a bunch of audiences. So that's number one. Number two, everybody on that show who's performing is doing the same material. You're all doing material about this guy. So what often happens is, you know, depending on where you are in the lineup, um, you know, you got to listen carefully because a good chance is you're going to be spending half of that roast crossing off your jokes because somebody else got to the same joke before you did. Mm. So that's why the people who go on at the end of the roast, I mean, um, you always used to be Pat Cooper because he could just go off and riff or, or like a Gilbert Gottfried, you know, who are doing their own thing because all the jokes are gone. When I roasted Jerry Lewis in like 2006, um, I was very proud that I only lost one joke. Jeff Ross beat me to one joke. He went up before me. Uh, but I, I wrote jokes that were original enough that uh, I didn't I didn't lose most of my stuff. But but you overwrite to prepare for that happening. And when I was the roastmaster for Gary Busey, obviously, I went up first, even though I went up throughout the show. 
uh, I was able to get all the good stuff out of top, so I didn't have to worry about it quite as much. But, yeah, you have to overwrite and prepare because chances are someone else is going to get to a joke that you, you were looking to do. So uh, that, those are two very unique challenges that you don't run into as often doing a regular stand-up show. So, okay, Stephen, I have to ask you, <clears throat> is that really Gilbert's voice that we hear? Or is that just a, a, a voice that uh, he came up with? Uh, Gil- oh, so Gilbert, yeah, no, Gilbert, um, so I know Gilbert uh, for many years, and, and he's so terrific. Uh, I, what's funny about this, and people would be, so, you know, it's a character, it's 100% a character. Um, and it's funny, too, because, yeah, when you, when you know Gilbert off off uh, off camera or off stage, I mean, he's, he's the sweetest, nicest, most docile, almost seemingly shy person, it, which would shock a lot of people. Uh, he is so normal and down to earth and just a regular guy. Um, and then, and I've been in numerous situations with him over the years where like, we'll be on a roast. Like I, you know, we'll be like the Jerry Lewis. I'm sitting right next to him on the dais and we're bantering and we're having a nice chat. And then all of a sudden he goes up and then, yeah, Jerry Lewis goes into a <laughs> And it's like, wow. So I think in order to have that kind of energy, when you need it, you, you kind of have to conserve it <laughs> when you're not on stage. Otherwise, yeah, yeah. you pass out, you know. So it's amazing. And then and then there are times now, if you listen to Gilbert, Gilbert has a podcast that he does uh, with Frank Santa Padre, and it's, it's a great podcast. It and, is uh, great. He's, yeah. he's kind of, yeah, you, you hear he's not really, like, intense like that. He's kind of a more more like him. He's like a hybrid between that the loud character that we know him for and then the, the regular Gilbert. He's somewhere in between because you can't really sustain that in a regular conversation for, you know, an hour or so. So, um, so he, you know, there are a lot of acts who have uh, a stage persona. Uh, another good example I might think of is like a Lewis Flack. You know, Lewis, I remember many years ago when I, I, I was working in Atlantic City with Lewis and, um, and then he had just done Conan for the first time. This is probably the mid nineties. And he, um, he, uh, it was weird because he did this set, you know, where he's got that kind of, like, no, it you know, he's all angry. And then he sits down on panel with Conan and Conan starts talking to him. And he's this regular affable Lewis Black. And it was like, wait, who's the guy we just saw? <laughs> so I, it was really a weird dichotomy. And then, then you, uh, you know, over the years, you've seen him kind of bridge that gap where he's kind of, uh, he be, he morphs the two together and then, then he'll turn it up when he needs to and turn it down. But it's, you know, you can't be like that in a conversational thing as you can when you're standing uh, at a microphone. So there are a few acts who've had a kind of bridge, you know, that gap over the years of, you know, like a, or a Bobcat Goldthwait who had that crazy kind of, oh, yeah, yeah. or a Dice Clay, you know, those, there are, those are acts who have these character personas they do as their stage persona. And um, so that, yeah, so that is, that's a, so you know what, creating, creating a character is kind of a dangerous thing for a comedian because you've got to keep that up every single time. And actually, whenever people approach you, they'll ask you to be that character or do that right. character all the time. So that's kind of a dangerous Absolutely. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not, you know, it's not so much that it's even dangerous. It's just, it's just you know, it, it could be exhausting, you know, uh, differentiating too. I mean, like in, in Dice Clay's uh, situation, I believe, and I could be wrong because he started, he was around way before I was. Uh, I think the Dice character was a character in his stand-up act that he would do. And then that character became so popular, that ended up becoming the, the, the whole persona. So, oh, yeah. yeah, and it, it is tricky. Of certainly when you, you know, when you're associated, uh, especially if it's an edgy character. And, you know, even, even Howard Stern to some extent, you know, over the years, you know, uh, 
he you know he his his radio persona was a character character and then off off uh, radio, he was kind of a more normal guy, but you know, he still had the stigma following him around from people who were, you know, either you know, egregious fans or not fans at all. Uh, it's kind of like, hey, dude, that's my radio persona. I'm, yeah, I'm a different yeah. guy. I got kids. I'm a father. You know, but so yeah, it is a weird dynamic to have to bridge that gap. I, I um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I don't know. You know, again, it, it's not necessarily dangerous. I mean, certainly if it's making your living, but it is. It is a challenge, no doubt. <laughs> so uh, one thing I in, in the conversation that uh, I have yet to get to is that uh, you're also a voice impressionist, and I'm looking over the whole entire list of voices that you do, and it's just in, amazing. Which one has been I, the, I, yeah. What's that? Which one what? So which one has been the, the toughest for you to, to do or uh, master? Oh, it's interesting. You know, it's um... – it's funny because it's a, tra- a challenging question to uh, answer in the, in the respect that there, um, when you're doing a voice, you know, I do a lot of voices, character voices, sometimes celebrity voices, whatever it is, sound effect. Um, it, it depends on, um, there's different types of voices. I'll give you a good example. If, if um, you know, there's visual there's uh, and there's audio. So, and then some, some impressions you can get down where it's, um, uh, and I'll use, I'll use a good example of a guy, uh, an old, my old pal, Jamie Foxx, who I worked with many years ago. Jamie was a stand-up, and he had a talent for doing voices. He used to do Ray Charles in his act. Yes. And he, you know, but there's a very big difference between doing J- uh, Ray Charles on stage in a comedy show versus playing him in a film and winning Oscar, uh, uh, Oscar for Best Actor. You know, you're not doing the impression like he became Ray Charles. It was unbelievable. I mean, you forgot you weren't watching Ray Charles. Mm-hmm. So... Um, when you do an impression, uh, and, you know, if you're doing it on stage, you want it to be funny. Something you you have room to make it a little caricature. But you know, um, if you're standing on stage, people are seeing you. So is it just the voice? I have some voices where I can nail the voice, but I you know, but other other ones where I can do the face or I can do the mannerisms, and you know, uh, and then some I can do for a line or two where they're dead on, and then others I can speak fluently where I can carry on a conversation. So it's it's. Um, it's interesting. And some, some voices evolve, you know, like a Donald Trump, for example, is a good example because I remember years ago when he started doing the apprentice and I, I, I had, you know, I was able to do his voice back then before anyone else was doing it. I, I had it down. It was really accurate. And then what it is now is like completely different. It's evolved. I mean, he's become obviously a different person over the years and, and uh, you know, from, uh, from both, you know, being, uh, a reality star to being a president and what he says and how he says, you know, it's, it's, it, it's become a lot more caricature now because, you know, he's changed. So uh, I looked at something recently where I saw myself doing the, the, the Trump from like 2004 and it's like completely different than it is now because it evolved. So sometimes you have to evolve with the person if you're, if you're going to do the voice, but um, yeah, it's interesting. Some are challenging. Uh, you know, I was, I listen to Governor Cuomo every day and I listen to him and I'm, that's a challenging one. I was trying to get that one down and I'm like, Oh yeah, that's not, that's not so simple. Sometimes they come to you. Sometimes they don't. Some, some take more work and you know, it, it's, uh, they're all different. They're all, uh, they're all, I can't really pinpoint one as being the most difficult. And some might be difficult for the voice uh, and others might be difficult just for the face. And, you know, there's different aspects of it. Um, so yeah, there's uh, I, I don't have a simple answer as to pinning it down to one particular voice, but and sometimes I've had to do jobs because I do a lot of voiceover work. Well, they'll hire me to do a voice of somebody. It might not be someone I know, um, and I have to match it. I have to listen to the voice and 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 kind of get it down. And I'm I'm pretty good at doing that. 
Um, so those can be tough sometimes when it's for a commercial job. And they're like, okay, we need this kind of voice. Can you do it? And I, I'm hearing it for the first time, and I'm just trying to get it down. If there's something I can sink my teeth into, when you're on stage doing it for comedy, it's funny. You don't – how do I explain? Okay, I'll give you a great example. This is the best example I can give you. Uh-huh. Arnold Schwarzenegger, okay? Arnold Schwarzenegger. I have I have gotten jobs and lost jobs because of that voice. <laughs> um, I'll tell you why. Yeah, I'll say exactly why. So early on, I got. Uh, they said we want an Arnold Schwarzenegger voice for this thing, but legally they couldn't. It couldn't be Schwarzenegger. They didn't have the rights to it or whatever it was, and they really didn't want a Schwarzenegger. They wanted a Hans and Franz kind of a voice. Remember Hans oh, and yeah. Franz? Yeah. yeah. They wanted to do Now that is not how Arnold Schwarzenegger. No. Comedically, if you're gonna you know, that's what that's the one that most people do, you know. It's not at all what he really sounds like in a normal conversation, but that's the caricature and that's what most people do. Now, years later, he became governor of California and was a public figure and the rules were a little different. And uh, I was hired to do a show where they needed someone to do Schwarzenegger's voice as accurately as possible to introduce people at this event, you know, whatever. So I booked that job because... So the first jobs I lost because my Schwarzenegger was too good and too accurate and they wanted the Hans of France. But when he was governor, uh, the governor, I was able to do it accurately. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, you look at the state of California and all these problems there and the, this fiscal crisis situation, <laughs> all these things, you know, and that's how you really talk. And so I was able to do it accurately enough that I booked the job right away and I got it, you know. So that's a that's a good example of where, you know, what you can get away with on stage. You want it to be funny, so you exaggerate it. But when you have to do it accurately for a, a movie, if you're looping someone in a movie or if you're doing a commercial where you have to be some I've had to do that, too, by the way. I've had to do that in commercials, oftentimes demo commercials, where they're like the you know, the Snickers commercials, where yeah. they say, here, have a Snickers bar, and it's, it's like a celebrity or whatever. I, I did the demos for a lot of those where I had to do the celebrity's voice, and then they sell it to the ad agency, and they go, okay. And then they get the real celebrity for the actual. They go to the celebrity and say, okay, how would you like to do this? And they play it to them with my voice, and then they go, okay, I'll do it. And then then you, then you see Betty White or Joe Pesci or Richard Lewis or whoever is is actually in it. So, um, so there's different standards for different types of uh, voices is basically the point there. So, uh, Steve, I have one more question for you, sir, and uh, thank you so much for coming on uh, the show. It's been this has been so much fun talking to you. Uh, sure, uh, anything for my cousin Michael, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? That's actually what I'm. Well, okay, maybe I won't go that far. I, I won't play yeah. my cousin. Anyways, so uh, basically. Um, what advice would you give to someone who wants to get into comedy? What what advice do you give to someone like me who's been in, I mean, I haven't been in comedy, say, as long as you have, but uh, I'm, I've been in it for about two years now. So, so what advice do you give to someone? Well, my, 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 my immediate advice to anyone starting out is uh, run for your lives. Don't do this. Go get a real job and be happy. You know? Yeah. Um, but um, no, in all seriousness, and if I can ask you, Michael, where, where, I mean, um, is, there's a difference between, um, you know, doing stand-up, uh, you know, develop, you know, on your free time developing and doing it where it's your actual livelihood. Um, and and I, I think so. I would I would ask the person first, you know, what is your goal? Do you want to do this? You know, some people want to do stand-up because they were, you know, hey, I was always funny. It's always been a bug. I wanted to try it. I'm going to go see where it goes. But they still have a day job, or they still have, you know, they're going to be paying the bills. And then other people, you know, are looking to make this a living, and it's a different set of standards. So if for somebody who's looking to uh, make a living, um, 
one of the things I always say, as I, as I said earlier in this, in this uh, conversation is learn to write clean because the highest paying gigs you're going to get are, are going to mostly for the most part require you to be clean. So you can always, I have jokes where I have dual punchlines. I have, uh, if I have a joke that's got an edgier punchline, but I don't want to throw out the whole bit so I can't do it when I need to be clean. I have the cleaner version of the punchline so I can keep the bit intact. So I always say, look, you can be dirty whenever you're able or want to, but, but when it's paying the bills, learn to write clean. So that's, that's one of the biggest pieces of advice I give. Two is, you know, look, there's no substitute for stage time. I mean, you can talk to people, say, how long are you doing comedy? I've been doing it uh, five years. Meanwhile, they go up once, you know, uh, or twice a month at most. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you've got other acts who are going up, you know, six, seven times a week. So there's a big difference in development there. Now, I don't, now what, what, when you perform stand-up, Michael, where, where, do you, where do you perform? Like, what city are you, are you going up in most of the time? Um, I'm in the Midwest, so uh, Kansas City, uh, okay. over in Kansas. Um, so, yeah, there's a few comedy clubs around here. Okay, so that's good. So, I mean, look, obviously, um, if you know, I live, I live uh, in New York City, so there's yeah. a huge comedy scene here. If you're in Los Angeles, you know, those are the places where you're going to get to have the most opportunity, not just in the city clubs, of which there are many, but also the road gigs, I mean, are really close by. So, obviously, in, in Kansas City, you may have a few clubs you go to, uh, but, you know, if, if, to make a living at it, you're going to have to move around a little more. Uh, but but certainly whatever clubs you have there in, in Kansas City, you know, get up as often as you can and uh, do every show you can. I don't know if you're doing are you doing the main shows? Are you doing the bringer shows, the open mics, whatever it is? Uh, uh, open mics for right now. Um, OK, that's but yeah. that's great. And you know what? Look, there's a lot of those up to just do them. The more you get up, the more you um, the better you get. There's no substitute for mileage and uh, always be writing. You know, um, people forget a lot of times. And I just had this conversation the other night with a good friend of mine. I did her show and um, we were talking about that, you know, there's no substitute for, for the writing. You know, you can you have your your uh, you have your content and then you have your character, as you discussed with Lewis, and you have your communication, your connection, all the different facets of a stand up comedy routine. And, you know, some people try to say, oh, I'm a storyteller. No, you're then go tell stories in a, in a cafe. If, you, if you're in a comedy club, you're a joke teller. Mm-hmm. So you always got to be mindful of the jokes. Always, always mind for material. Always every day, whatever, whether it's reading the paper or going out, always be writing. Always flex the writing muscle. And then, you know, you try things out. I mean, when this whole situation happened, uh, this coronavirus situation, this is a new situation for all of us. I had a situation where, and thankfully it worked out, my mom had COVID. So she recovered miraculously. She's 75 years old. And so, you know, she made a full recovery and I was able to, you know, celebrate Mother's Day the other day and it had a whole different meaning. But when this first happened, I was, I was kind of down. I didn't feel like being funny. I didn't feel like writing jokes. I was like, this is messed up. And I was down. And then eventually some funny things start to happen. You start making observations. And then I did my buddy's show last week, virtual show. And I did all this brand new material that had just come from, you know, the week or two before that I was just trying out for the first time based on my experience. So even whatever situation, you can always be writing, always have ideas, and then go on stage and try it out. And uh, eventually, look, you get better. People start to notice. They say, hey, I'm doing a show. Why don't you come over to my show next week? And, blah, 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 blah. and it just develops. And look, and, and, and back to, you know, your point about the advice. is if you, As long as you have means to pay your bills, okay, um, then you don't have that pressure of you know then you can just take it at your pace develop as much as you can and if at some point you're fortunate enough 
where you can quit whatever the day job is and actually make your living as a stand-up, then mazel tov, you know? Um, but if, if, you know, always have something that you, because if you're making money doing whatever it is you do, you're going to be relaxed. You know, you're paying your bills. And yeah. then this is now a hobby you can develop as hard as you can. And if it gets good enough to become a career, wonderful. But don't put yourself in the situation where it's do or die. and Because it's, it's a really hard business. Um, there are going to be, it's, it's not like a straight line. I mean, it's a roller coaster. And you are one minute, you're slowly going up in the right direction. And the next thing you're careening at 60 miles an hour straight to the ground. And <laughs> yeah. You're upside down and then you're pulling <laughs> to the left and right. And I could go through the whole, I've, I'm, I just celebrated 25 years in stand-up. And Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And you could be at the very top. I mean, the pinnacle, a holding deal with a major studio, doing a, a TV show with two major A-list celebrities. And then, then like a year later, you're like, oh, my God, well, I'm trying to scrounge for work. And then all of a sudden you're, you're crying and going, wow, I can't get anything going. And then, you know, a couple of months later, you're, you're you got a you got a TV pilot on a network. You know, so it literally you just have to be able to be a strong person to realize that it's, it's not going to be steady. It's going to be all over the place. You're going to have ups and downs. Um, but if you really believe in yourself, if you really believe in it, you just got to keep going. Uh, I heard a quote from, uh, Cuomo the other day on his, uh, on his briefing where he, he said, um, uh, I was quoting Winston Churchill said, if, if you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> and I thought that was a great quote. I'd never heard it before. So yeah, there are going to be times it is going to be the, the greatest time of your life. And there's other times it's going to be rough, but you, you got to see it through the long haul. If that's your goal and just keep fighting, just keep going. And that's, uh, you know, the old, uh, I think Tom Hanks once gave some young actor um, uh, advice. They said, now, Mr. Hanks, some young actor, what, what advice do you have? And he just looked at him in one word. He said, persevere. And that's really what it is. Just persevere. Keep doing your thing. Keep writing. Keep getting up. And, and if it's meant to be, it'll be. And uh, maybe I'll be opening for you one day, Michael. <laughs> That'd be great. That would be fantastic. Um, hopefully it won't be when we're both old by any means. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Well, hey, look, you know, I'll tell you something about this business. You know, uh, there's no retirement in comedy. I mean, I think of how many people are doing this into their 90s. You know, George Burns, Milton Berle, uh, Bob Hope, uh, Buddy Hackett, all these guys. You know, uh, Professor Irwin Corey was 102. I mean, um, you know, the, the, you just, you know, Joan Rivers was in her 80s. She And then, you know, she would have kept going. That was an accident when she passed away. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so if you got it, you, you do it as long as you can. And uh, so we'll take it when we get it. Absolutely. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time, sir. And uh, hey, come come to Kansas City sometime. I would love to see you, sir. I would love to. I'd love to. And congrats to you and uh, the Chiefs and Mr. Patrick Mahomes, uh, whom I'm a big fan. You guys uh, oh, deserve your it's victory. A, it's, it's been a long time waiting. A long, a long time, time coming. I was rooting for you guys. I'm a Giants fan being Ryan, but I've always been pulling for the Chiefs. Well, it was nice knowing you, Steve. It really was. <laughs> no, I mean, hey, you know, but I, I've always been, uh, I've always been pulling for the Chiefs, and I'm a huge fan of Patrick Mahomes. So I was thrilled you guys won this year. So if I do come to Kansas City, I'm going to take you up on that. Maybe we'll go to Arrowhead and catch a game or something. Absolutely, I would love that. Well, sounds good, Steve. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Likewise, and stay safe, Michael. You too, bye-bye. buddy. All right, bye bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you like what you heard today, like our Great Scott Podcast Facebook page. That's where you can find information on Mike's upcoming entertainment podcasts.